0: Let me, let me pray to get us started this morning. Father, we're grateful to be in your word, to have access to your word in so many ways in our lives, and Father, I pray that we will not take that for granted today, that we will treasure your word, uh, treasure the ways you want to change us, the, the processes that you use to change us, and that in, the, in that way we'll be growing to be like Christ, walking with him faithfully, loving one another, and helping one another to do the same. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing the story of David. And last week we focused on the, the side, if you will, of David's growth in faith and his, his showing forth faith. And today we're going to focus on David as a, a man of contrition or a man of repentance. One of my early language helpers and friends in Papua New Guinea was a man named Taumusi. He's the one here up in the front with his two kids and his wife. And uh, even though this brother lives in New Guinea, I want to honor him today by treating him with kindness and respect. Uh, But when we first arrived in New Guinea, Tom and his wife gave us their house. This is common hospitality practice in New Guinea. They gave us their house and then they lived in their little cooking house for two months while we built a house together. And, uh, and an interesting way to practice hospitality there, right? Even amongst some believers, that was the case. And he and I worked together. They loved our kids well. Um, Liam was a friend of one of his sons. And they, Talia, as soon as she was born, she was all over the community there uh, being loved on. But we worked together early days building houses. We built a small 300-square-foot house that we ourselves lived in for, for a, a good while uh, when Liam was just a, just a little guy. And then we worked together to build a church building, uh, and he was—he and I were just constantly talking, planning, strategizing, organizing. Uh, the The church was finished there, and then he and I worked together um, once that building was completed to build a ministry office and uh, a place where eventually the leaders of the church could. Served together to, to create curriculum, Bible teaching curriculum. So he was a faithful brother that I worked alongside for many years. And I remember very clearly, and even talking about this, challenge makes me feel emotional, but I remember very clearly the day when, after years of working together, he and his wife came to me and, and confessed, and they were both sobbing uncontrollably, which was unusual, in that context. But he confessed to having had an inappropriate relationship with his single sister-in-law. And there are are many strange dynamics of culture that are in play in in these settings. For example, sisters-in-law are the most marriageable uh, partners for societies like the Ata where they're polygamous, so they would have multiple wives. And typically, the sister-in-law would be one of their most eligible partners. She was single and hadn't gotten married, and in that society, she's under pressure to get married because it's not seen well in that society to be single. Uh, So she had been single a long time, and he is receiving pressure from unsaved family members to take her as another wife. And also, he had a brother-in-law who had actually died of AIDS, which was very unusual for the setting. That was the first time we'd seen that. And that was a social stigma for the family. So there were a host of pressures that put him in a position to, over time, be complacent in his relationship to his sister-in-law, and eventually that became an adulterous relationship. And and I remember this sitting with this brother and his wife, and they were devastated as they confessed that complacency to me and to us. And, You know, it was a serious sin, it was a public sin, Uh, it was very demonstrable, and yet we were praying for indicators of repentance. And he confessed that sin to the congregation, and we organized for him to share and for us to share alongside him. And I tell you, the, the moment of seeing this brother standing in the place of his public teaching ministry, confessing to the church... That sobering sin was quite a moment of reversal, and um, he he immediately wanted to step down from ministry. He he served in the background and continued to do work on behalf of the church there to submit to what we as an an eldership team would have for him, and we created a plan for him. And yet, you know, in a situation like that, there's no guarantee of opportunity to return to ministry, to public ministry. We can't predict that. What we have to do is to see over time, is there real evidence of the fruit of repentance in a life? And that, that's a havoc and a heartache that the complacency of sin can bring to us that is part of what I'd like to describe today as our main point from the life of David. This idea that complacency blinds, but contrition blesses. And I'd like for you to come away today more convinced that you need to beware of complacency and you need to treasure contrition. We need to actually learn to treasure the opportunity that God gives you for repentance. Because that's the evidence that we see in the heart of David, in a a man who committed serious, significant, heinous sin that was public in the kingdom of Israel. And uh, we're going to watch and re- we're going to see some of the ways in which w- evidence is shown by David that he indeed understood that tr- contrition before the Lord was actually the treasure of his heart. And that's, that's what I, I want us to think about today. So as we saw last week, uh, we saw David as a man who was chosen by God. We saw that he was called by God a man after his own heart. He was one who had a sense of living before the face of God. And so this week, we'll continue that story and recognize this point that David gets to where his heart has become complacent. His heart is not active, not, not careful, and, and he himself gets into serious sin predicaments. So last week, let's just remind ourselves how we got to 2 Samuel 11, and I, I just wanted to show you a timeline of David's life because it helped me to see this. Uh, David is, we think he was coronated, not, not anointed for the first time by uh, Samuel, which can be confusing, but actually coronated as, as king at Hebron when he was 30 years old. So he was, after the death of Saul, he's acknowledged to be king and he rules over the, the kingdom of Jerusalem for seven years the kingdom of judah where jerusalem was for seven years so he's 30 years old then and then when he's 37 years old he rules over the united kingdom of both israel and judah so the kingdom comes together united under david's authority and um, he's established as king of the whole nation 37 years old okay and um in second samuel chapter 7 then that's chapters 5 and 6 in chapter 7 we have the, the Davidic covenant. So this, um, this massively significant event in which God promises through David an eternal kingship that will be fulfilled, as we know, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Davidic covenant comes on the heels of David having been established as king, as a 37-year-old, and God making that kind of covenant with David. And then in chapters 8 through 10 in 2 Samuel, we have 10 years of david being established in victories as king and all that context is important because when we get to second samuel chapter 11 we now have a 47 year old man who has become complacent he's had the opportunity to be established as king and then to live 10 years under the blessing if you will of god at work in him to make to put him in a position in effect to be successful And yet what we see as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that that has created a kind of carelessness and complacency in his life. And I'll tell you, this morning, as this is a sobering kind of message, I'll just tell you, I'm thankful that David is not our savior. David is not the king that we are waiting for and have waited for. Jesus Christ is. And therefore what we see here is that David is a king who's no less sinful than we are. He's one whose descendants, in fact, through some of the choices that David makes and some of the consequences from these events, his descendants will have more struggle to stay pure of idolatry than David does. And so though he's a man after God's heart, he's one who sins grievously and he lives a life, as is evidenced in various places in the scriptures, of contrition, of repentance. That he's one who... Pursued the heart of God by being a man of contrition, and so I pray that as we think that through this morning, uh, we will we will see ourselves standing in that place of needing to see God use a heart of repentance and contrition to regularly cleanse and change us, so that we can be conformed to His image in the way that He desires for us, that we can show the character of Christ. So by the time we get to chapter eleven we are going to encounter then in David, in your notes there, a life that is indeed stained by sin. And, and keep in mind, the, the author in chapters 11 and 12, the, in chapter 10, if you scan that, you'll see that there's an Ammonite conflict that's described there. And chapters 11 and 12 slow the narrative down, slow the story down, to present a, 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 an in-depth view of the heart of David in the midst of that conflict. So Ammon is a kingdom down here off to, the, off to the west side of the Jordan. And the green is the territory that David would eventually conquer. The gray is the territory that he um, originally possessed and then was expanding. And so this is happening when they're, in, they're seeking to uh, conquer that Amnite territory to the west there of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan. And that's where we, we find this story. So let me read verse 1 there for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, that's where we are. We're going to spend most of our time in chapters 11 and 12 this morning. 2 Samuel 11, 1, It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So remember with me, that David is now 47 years old. He's been ruling successfully for 10 years in Jerusalem. And what we're seeing is this complacency of life for him. Now, I wanted to give you a definition of complacency because I found it instructive to think this through. I'm defining complacency, spiritual or moral complacency, as contented worldliness or a contented indifference to the earnest pursuit of sanctification. So what I want us to be thinking about is the fact that complacency spiritually is, is a posture that is in motion. It's, in spiritual terms, in fact, in any living organism, including the human heart, there is no neutral coast position. There's always movement in a direction. And so complacency spiritually is a movement toward contented worldliness. It's an investing in a contented indifference to the earnest pursuit of sanctification. And that, that's, that's a critical principle of life for a Christian. Because if we don't understand that we're in movement one direction or another, then, then we let the passivity of heart uh, move us to, to worldliness, to indifference, to a lack of, of care in, in our sanctification. Now, just remember with me, as this talks about the season when kings go to war, this isn't baseball season, Okay. This isn't like the basketball season. It's the season of going to war. No, this is the time when the kings of Israel that God established were were intended to be eradicating idolatry from the land that God had given them to cleanse. So David was responsible to be proactively cleansing the land of Israel from the idolatrous nations that were possessing that land that God had given to his people. And so there's a there's a you can see the literal lack of spiritual responsibility that he's taking up there, because instead of proactively as a shepherd and as a leader, taking responsibility to lead the people to cleanse the land of idolatry, he's passively complacently staying in Jerusalem and therefore submitting him himself and others around him to a kind of contented indifference to the the pursuit that God has had for him to take up. And and I'll just, the personal application here for me is big. Like, that's that's us too, right? Like, we're people who are embedded in a world that is continually pressing in on our souls to try to conform us to its image. And we're those who, before the Lord, becoming a Christian, being a disciple of Christ, are therefore in a position where our proactive responsibility is to pursue and eradicate sin alongside the Holy Spirit's work revealing that for us. And so therefore, in a spiritual sense, we're in this kind of proactive, responsible disciple of Christ position. And and, uh, so when David's army was going out to war, and when our army, in effect, spiritually, should be going out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. He sent others out, and he stayed behind. He's the king who leads the army, and he stayed behind and he abdicated that responsibility. And you know the story, but we'll read some of the verses here together. This is not new to you. I know we even had this preached in, in the Sunday services, but see there with me in, in verses two down to five in chapter 11, Second Samuel 11. It says, "It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of, of a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purified she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness or uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. If we just tracked In that short paragraph, all of the main verbs that move the action of the story forward, we see a rapid fire and ruthless set of verbs that make this a very sensual kind of affair for David. In other words, he arises, he walks, he sees, he sends, he sends again, he takes, she comes to him, he lies with her, she returns, she conceives, she informs. Just no, there's no there's no sense of of uh, the kind of integrity of intimacy that God would have for a relationship. No, this is just a sensual and fleshly encounter that that is prompted by David's indifference, his complacency, his lack of care of his soul. If you've been in Jerusalem or have heard explanation of the city of David, you'll you'll know that the the actual the Temple Mount is here. David's palace was here this lower portion there that was built up on the ridge is thought of as a city of David so David's palace is elevated and it's common for people to be on the rooftop in the heat of the day and he's able to see down into areas of the city and all of those events and a lack of engagement with responsibility put him in a position like this and I tell you once once that kind of event occurs, then what we see from David is he immediately has to try to do collateral damage control. Because he's now got to involve a whole bunch of other people too in the plot to make this work. The text makes clear that she wasn't pregnant before coming to David. That's why the description there of the purification. So through his lust for a woman that he sees, who's the wife, as he knows, of one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, David sins for her, objectifies her, pressures her in some way, and commits adultery with her. It's, minimally, regardless of Bath- Bathsheba's ad- ad- attitude towards the event, this is a serious abuse of authority. And the contrast between her purification ritually and his ugliness of heart Um, shows that conception of sin there and she sends back to him and says i'm pregnant and so just an application again friends and i i say this to myself beware of inaction beware of the indicators of spiritual and moral complacency complacency spiritually blinds us it dulls your sensitivity, the sensitivity of your heart, the conviction of your heart to sin and truth. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, it, it always produces collateral damage. So you're not never the only one harmed by the impact of sin like this. Always collateral damage. And that's what we see in, in David's life. Because as we move forward in verses 6 to 13... We see now that David has to lie and deceive all the more. That he has sought to control and manipulate the circumstances and he's done great evil in the process. And now that inaction, if you will, which I'm arguing is not actually an inaction, it's a decision. But an inaction in complacency produces an action in unrighteousness. And lives are always in motion either toward God or away from God. And the one of the many ironies of passages of scripture like this because of who God is as the sovereign one who controls events and affairs of life is that David cannot, there's one man's decisions David can't manipulate and that's Uriah the Hittite. So David the king of Israel the Hebrew can't control the decisions of Uriah the Hittite. This foreigner who's come to be a part of the nation of Israel and who wants to live sacrificially and above reproach. Because when David calls Uriah to come to him, to talk, come talk with him, Uriah expresses a posture that is indicating that he's vigilant in his responsibility before the Lord. That he thinks, in fact, David, the king of Israel, thinks like a user and Uriah thinks like a shepherd in this set of events. Look at verses 10 and 11 there with me. David says to Uriah, David's trying to get Uriah to go home and cover up the sin by sleeping with his own wife. And Uriah refuses to do that. So in verse 10 and 11, David says to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark, so the presence of God, and Israel, the people of God, and Judah, the chosen direction line of God, dwell in booths. In other words, they're not at home. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. They're at risk. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see a pledge of commitment to the people, the purposes, and the presence of God there. To the glory of God. And so David the king... Has to pressure Uriah the Hittite, and try to manipulate and connive and maneuver, a pursuer, a user, a manipulator, uh, a contented worldliness that puts David in a position that that's his only recourse. And I, again, friends, I'm not challenging you without challenging myself. Believe me, like that's a that's a it's just a, a continual wrestle before the Lord that we're responsible for to not allow that kind of indifference to blind us to uprightness to righteousness that David should be able to be convicted by Uriah the Hittite in this situation and recognize sin in his own life and yet he's completely blind to that he's now content and intent on pursuing a course that can bring an absolute disaster on the nation he's got to continue maneuvering and plotting so he thinks he's got I can't turn back now and and it brings me to this idea of application that I think is, is a lie that's a hell lie. And, and that application is what I think of as the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy. In other words, I've invested too much to turn back, right? I've sunk too much. I, I've invested too much in the deceitfulness of this. And if I can just invest a little more, I can make this right and no one would know any different. I can't stop. I, I'll lose too much if I come clean. That's the lie. I'll lose too much if I turn from worldliness right at this moment. I have to wait until that moment so that I I can make myself look different in the eyes of people and not come clean before the Lord. I'll I'll lose too much if I turn to godliness. I can't repair it enough if I do that. I I can't hide it. I can't, and you you know what I'm saying here. And I just want to encourage you and encourage myself. That's always the wrong decision. That the right time to turn to godliness is in the moment when sin is acknowledged and recognized. That contrition, without exception, in God's economy is always the best option. That God is not in the business of negotiating terms of surrender to sin. And so in 2 Samuel 11, 14 to 20, now David has to send Joab back to his own people Uh, to write a mandate of murder for the people of God. Not only will he kill, put Uriah to death, but he'll put others of the soldiers who are there in that conflict to death because he he orchestrates through Joab this military campaign that's a a, a suicide mission because they get too close to the wall and he knows that's going to happen. He has the army pull back and he allows Uriah and others to be killed. So he reorders, just think with me about that, he's reordering the priorities and purposes of God rather than pursuing righteousness, he's pursuing unrighteousness and he's causing others to pursue unrighteousness. This one who should be leading as shepherd and king is actually putting his people in a place to pursue unrighteousness because they're in effect those who should be eliminating the enemies of God through their idolatry and sin and yet they're not doing that. And, and, and again, it's a corrupt abuse of the authority and responsibility that David has. And friends, I, I don't want to make, I, my, my desire today is not to overwhelm you with the heaviness of the situation. But there is a sense in which anytime we pursue sin in indifference, when we're contented in our worldliness... then then we're leading others into a position where they're making decisions for unrighteousness. Because we're corporately, together, responsible to function before the eyes of the Lord. And so this kind of inattention and inaction is a leading in unrighteousness, it's an indecency. How is that possible for the man after God's own heart? And I say, because complacency has blinded him. He has contented himself to worldliness. And Uriah himself, there in those verses, carries his own death sentence back into the field. He knows nothing about that. And David prepares himself, even in his reaction to the news that he's crafted for Uriah to come back. And when he tells him what had happened, he's he's ready now to craft this elaborate hoax to continue to propagate the lie. And again, just keep in mind, friends that we operate in sin the same way, that we have all kinds of means. I, I can tell you, I, we could sit here for the rest of our time and give examples of all the kinds of ways that we tend to do the same thing. We tend to be indifferent. We tend to be rationalizers, right? You, you know this. We tend to justify ourselves, that complacency and compromise in this way put us in a position we're not investing in God's purposes, we're investing in our own purposes. We're willing to submit ourselves to a kind of indecent action that should shock and stun us more regularly. And yet, many times we're submitting and subjecting ourselves to that in a way that is, to say the least, dishonoring to the Lord. And so, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 22 to 25 there, David um, hears that Uriah is dead and David says to the messenger because he's already prepared this he says thus shall you say to Joab do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and another strengthen your attack against the city and encourage Joab and so David completes this deception and murder on behalf of his own sinful desires and lest we despair lest we despair let's come up for air for one second And praise God that Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life in the face of every temptation and never once betrayed or manipulated you. That there's no way in this life that God has given you that Jesus will ever operate as an abuser and a user of your soul. That he will always intend good for you. That he never has intentions for and toward you that are self-serving intentions. Now, theres I'm telling you, I'm leading my family. I'm leading a couple other environments. I can't even come close to saying that in reference to those I'm leading. And yet we trust God through leaders, through Christ, to be the one who never manipulates or controls or pursues purposes that aren't for your good and my good. So I'm just coming up for air to say praise God for that. Because we don't trust David for our salvation. We don't, as such, trust one another for our salvation. And yet we're responsible for one another and for pursuing righteousness, for not allowing worldliness to make us complacent. And so we continue reading in in chapter 11 there, verses 26 and 27, that um, David sends to Uriah's wife, to Bathsheba. And it's interesting that he's not using her name there, just the wife of Uriah. Um, because she, she was another man's wife. And David sends to her, brings her to himself. Verse 27, straightforward statement, and this is God's way of working, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. That, that's the clarifying narrative. David spun a bunch of them. God's narrative is the true one, and God was displeased. It, it literally means there, um, don't let this thing... When, when David sends um, to talk to Joab in verse 25, uh, and I didn't read that up above, yeah, I did read that, but you, the, the, the line there that says, do not let this matter displease you, that David tells Joab in verse 25 there in, in 2 Samuel 11, that, that line is literally, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And my point is, is that David is telling a human being subjectively, don't let what I've done be evil in your eyes, because Joab has to know all about this, and God is saying, this is evil in my eyes. And that's the point. So you can try to not make the matter evil in the eyes of a human being, but in God's eyes, the matter is evil, and that's clear. The statement says, this displeased God. It was evil in God's eyes. And so David can do all he wants to to try to manipulate and control the situation, but God does not negotiate. God's narrative is always true, and that's the case here, like always. And so nine months go by, and I just wonder... What's happening in David's heart in, over those nine months? He waits nine months, the child is born. only David knows the truth For all we know, the people may have thought David's being benevolent and adopting uh, the wife of one of his mighty men into his household and caring for uh, a, a child that is going to potentially be born for all we know that, that that's the case. And yet thirdly, there in your outline, we see God's, Eyes are on David. God sees David. He sees the sin of this situation. And that brings us to chapter 12 there. In 11, we see David's scheming action. And in chapter 12, we see God's providential intervention. Don't don't forget the pace of that narrative in chapter 11. It just moves step by step into that quagmire of sin and deceit. And so nine months have passed by the start of chapter 12. What's going on in the heart of David? We, we just don't know. But what we do know is when Nathan comes to talk to him, apparently he's not contrite. That there's guilt, sin, bloodshed, and yet uh, the amazing fact of how that, that lack of awareness or that lack of, that not, lack of removing scales from his eyes, uh, was God maybe waiting for David's repentance even? We just don't know. But minimally, we know that David had not made that decision. And so, friends, when David sends, um, when God sends Nathan to David, that's, that is a grace of God. When God sends his prophet with his word to confront the king, that's a grace of God. It's a gift. Because God's word cuts through the deception always and presents a narrative that is the true one. And Nate, and you know the story, God's in God's economy, Every, just to tell you, in, in terms of contrition and repentance, encounters with truth must happen. And they will be confrontational encounters, but they're always graces of God. Because the privilege for us, the treasure for us is indeed to see sin for what it is in our hearts and, and allow the Lord to continue to expose that through the treasure of his word and grace and then to be changed in it. If we don't see it, we aren't changed. And so Nathan is going to frame this conversation in order to bring conviction and contrition to the heart of a believer. David's in the hands of not human beings, not Joab, not anyone else, but in the hands of a righteous judge. And so are we. And God is going to bless him by bringing him to repentance, by providing contrition. And so in 2 Samuel 12 1 to 5, you know the story. Nathan tells this parable of a, a poor man and a rich man. The rich man had all kinds of goods and lambs. And the poor man loved this one lamb. Um, in the Ata context in New Guinea, they love these little, um, believe it or not, these little pigs. They care for these little pigs. They'll, they'll take their little pig and they'll hang it up in a bag by the house before it's tamed. And they'll feed it and take care of it and orient it to its surroundings so that it won't wander off. Right, And so they care for these little pigs. So I picture this poor man who treasures his little lamb. And, and then you know, the, you know what happens there. Nathan gives the account of how the wealthy man stole the lamb and, and, and took it from the poor man. This one possession that, um, that the, the poor man had. And the words of David in, in verses 5 and 6 should cut us to the heart. Because David says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Isn't, I, I'm telling you, it is amazing that human beings can look at others and find sin and fail to see it in themselves. That you and I have this amazing ability to look at others and see sin, call it out even, be indignant about it, demand justice. And, and then our eyes are not looking back towards ourselves and recognizing the significance of our own areas of complacency. It's the idea that Jesus talks about of the log in your eye and the, and the, and the might, you know, the idea of a small speck in someone else's eye and a log in your own. And that, that kind of blindness is sobering because it, it rep- represents a way that our hearts are often inclined, that we can um, we can be indifferent to truth, and produce in our own selves that kind of blind enslavement to sin. It's that that classic kind of way in which human beings deceive themselves. And and David, and it almost seems like, and you know, have you ever had this happen? I, I, I know over the course of time, I've heard some, I'll give you this example this way, I've heard missionaries tell stories where I was present, and the story seems to sort of it takes on a twist in life of its own, and pretty soon I'm thinking, wait, is that the same event that I was involved in? Because the story seems to have changed a lot since. It's gotten a little better. You know, the fish got a little bigger, and, and the story just kind of grew and, and got its own legs. And, and it, it's almost as if David has told this story so many times that he believes it, that he's, he, sin has deceived him to such a degree that he believes his own excuse-making narrative. He believes, in effect, he's gotten away with it. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when as Nathan makes that clear, Nathan says those words to David. You know those words, three words in Hebrew: you are the man. There's no you in the in the in the verse, it's just you are. It's are the man. It's you. Because it's the subject is implied there. And then the Lord speaks directly to David through Nathan. Verse 7, I anointed you. Verse 7, I delivered you. Verse 8, I gave you. Verse 8, I would add to you. So all of the good intentions of God toward his children, towards David, towards us, and, and therefore he levels that crushing blow in a question, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, that's a, that's a hard moment in a life. It's a hard moment in the life of a Christian. And yet, that's the place where we have to make a decision in that moment. Am I going to turn toward, in contrition toward God, in repentance toward God, or am I going to continue the narrative of manipulation? That when truth is presented in the face of sin, when God confronts us uh, with sin in our lives, when God says you are the woman or you are the man, what is our reaction then? How long does it take for the Lord's word to convict us? And God's charge to David is significant. He scorned God's word. He has despised God himself by despising God's word. He has personally killed Uriah with the sword. David, God says to David, you killed Uriah with the sword. You hear the difference in the narrative? And, and our tendency is to say, no, no but, no, but, no, but, no, but, no, it wasn't. I didn't actually, you know, I've had, you've, if you've been a parent, you've had this conversation with one of your children a time or two. No, but, no, but I wasn't actually, I wasn't holding it like it was, it was actually, you know. And we as adults do the same. We're a little more sophisticated about it. But we do the same thing. God's saying, Uriah, you were, God saying to David, you were holding the sword that killed Uriah. You put him to death. And the, the, it's in that moment when God has to challenge us. You know, I, I try, and I would encourage you to, when, when you see sin exposed in your life, I, I, just, I try to encourage my own kids and live an example that you have the option, take more responsibility, not less. Find a way to be fully responsible before the Lord. Don't underestimate your responsibility. You, you're, you, we're, we're usually more responsible than we think we are. And our tendency is to blame shift and rationalize. So blame shifting and rationalizing, those are two big enemies of contrition, of repentance. And what we see happen in the, in the life of David and the rest of the story of 2 Samuel is just this earthquake of consequences that continues on into his family. Absalom, his son, will oppose him. He will actually chase David out of Jerusalem. He, he will have inappropriate sexual relationships with some of David's wives on purpose in, in the public. And so just asking us, are we those who, in what ways are we despising the word of the Lord? Are we treasuring the opportunity in Christ to be turning to grace and repentance to change us? Do we see the Holy Spirit at work in us as a a grace, a treasure that brings us to contrition? Because God is at work in David and at work in us to, to accomplish that. God will always vindicate his name. And so, praise God, what we see from David in that exchange is indeed a, mar- a life that is marked by repentance. And what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, is David hearing Nathan say, You are the man. And David, in his next statement, his first statement back, says, I have sinned against the Lord. And um, Nathan's response to David would indicate that God has supernaturally seen Nathan David as one who truly is repentant that the Lord because Nathan says to him the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die so in God's kindness we see contrition from David because the contrite take responsibility for sin that's what what they do they take and I'll say ruthless stock of heart circumstances and facts as the Holy Spirit exposes them they don't shy away from the horror of even of the consequences of sin, which David has to face up to now. And I'll tell you, as a a non-Christian, the grim reality of life in the world around us, knowing what sin is and understanding the seriousness of sin could actually destroy you because there's no grace in it. There's no forgiveness in it. There's no movement positively in it. But before God, a ruthless assessment of my condition is a treasure that allows me to be changed. And that's such a difference. There, there are times, you know this, when young people or old, older people, older people like me, get mired down in the shame and guilt side of exposure to sin, and we fail to look up and see the privilege that contrition is to bring us to the person of Christ so that we can see the gloriousness of his forgiveness applied to us. And so don't lose sight of the privilege, the treasure of contrition, for the sake of change in your heart and my heart. David had utterly scorned the Lord, and yet unlike King Saul before him, he would not be crushed by that. King Saul is weighed down by the shame of sin and the fear of the men and women around him seeing his sin, he's so weighed down by that shame that he's crushed by sin rather than turning face forward to God to say, but I can confess sin to you and you can forgive me of sin. In the process, you can change me. And David will do that. And so I just wanted to throw one of probably 100,000 out there or definitions of repentance up for you here. That repentance is godly sorrow over sin that turns to God in faith for forgiveness and change. Repentance is godly sorrow over sin that turns to God in faith for forgiveness and change. Now, we, there's no way we can fully unpack that. <laughs> Even the, the idea of godly sorrow itself is, is challenging because it, it represents a posture. This is between me and the Lord. This is not between me and everybody else right now. This is between me and the Lord. I'm sorrowful because I've offended a holy God and my posture is to put that sin before that holy God who I've offended and make that right to ask for forgiveness. And that, that, that's why it's a turning to God in faith for that forgiveness and change. And we see that mark the life of David all throughout. There are many, many examples of that. If you know that the parallel passage to these chapters is Psalm 51, where David says that he knows his transgression is, and his sin is before him. And he knows that he says, against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. He, he says, I've done what's evil in your sight, God. And, and so Psalm 51, at some later point, would be good for you to read. Psalm 32 is another Good Psalm where David acknowledges what repentance is and reflects on repentance and forgiveness from God. Psalm 38, David also reflects on the, the reality of sin in his life and the need for repentance for God for, with God. And so I just want to encourage you to realize that David, many, many places in his life, is able to reflect on the seriousness of sin, the need for repentance. And though his sin was great, his grief and repentance were great. His grief and repentance toward and with God were great. And so I'll just say this. If we treasure contrition, we treasure correction. Because there is no such thing as contrition without correction. That God has to correct us in order to expose sin in us so that we can demonstrate the fruit of contrition, of repentance. And that's why in Psalm 141, David even talks about letting the righteous strike him because he knows he needs a community of faith around him to bring him to repentance. And and that's what I ask myself and ask you, what about us? If someone confronts you with the truth of God's word, is your tendency to say, but wait, but wait, I wasn't quite, it didn't quite, it wasn't, it was, but you didn't know, but how about? Right and to start spinning a narrative very quickly, that doesn't put us ruthlessly in the face uh, before the face of God to say, "I'm the man, I'm responsible. I'm the woman, I'm responsible." God needs to expose sin in me. Thank you for helping me to see it. That th- our 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 decision is not one of trying to do image management as John has talked about. Are we are we willing to receive correction humbly and gladly with thanksgiving, or when we feel that tendency of heart to squirm and deflect and ignore and dodge and manipulate and wait I got to fix this it's it's messing up my public perception here Uh, do, do we settle our souls before the Lord and allow God to be one who convicts and changes us are we those who are people who hear we grieve and we repent and that's a way of life for us and so after repenting and seeing God's forgiveness, we do see God, or we see David as a man who depends on the faithfulness of God. You know, Nathan says to him there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And David hears that his child will die. Nathan tells him that. And David pleads with God for more mercy. David's never afraid to ask God for mercy. And we don't need to be either. In fact, one author calls David a relentless intercessor. He's one who never stops interceding, and we see the right posture because David throws himself before the Lord. He waits seven days, and he, you know, this is the picture I have of, of the, a situation like this. There's a way in which as sinful people, we, we, we are grasping, our hands are clutched around something. Uh, the, our hands are clutched around the opinions of others, or they're clutched around uh, the, the need to control our own lives, or they're clutched around the, the potential for consequences, or they're, they're clutched around uh, a, a kind of uh, posturing of life. And, and what God does when we repent, or when he challenges us to repent, is he forces our hands open, and he says, leave your hands open. Stop clutching. Stop manipulating, stop trying to control, stop trying to argue for, stop uh, defending, stop ignoring, stop rationalizing, open your hands. We present open hands of faith and repentance before the Lord, before the justice of God, like David does and says, here it is, God, I'm going to fully trust you to do what's right with this. And in the process of that, God, in his grace, he takes those bloodstained hands and he cleanses them and he puts good in them and he establishes us in a direction of what's right. And he applies in that way grace to us. So the more we cling, the less opportunity there is to expose hands to God and allow him to cleanse them. And that's what he wants from us. And David's child does die seven days later. And David doesn't fall into desperate despair. No, because he's made a decision. My hands are open before God. He's the just one. He's the judge. He's the one who makes decisions that are good for me and that are right in all of his judgments. And so God does indeed take the child from David. And there are calamitous consequences. There's one one pastor said... That in a way, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel walks with a limp from this day forward. That the kingdom never quite recovers. And yet we see, just to keep moving, we see in Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, the, the seed of hope. We see little Solomon come along. And, we, and you, know, you know we need Solomon. Not just because we need hope in the picture, we need a savior. And Solomon is the one God would provide to get us there. And so the birth of Solomon is, a, is, is God's reestablishing the continuity of his narrative, his story for our salvation. And, and so God in his mercy provides David the heir that he would have chosen. And David reflects in Psalm 32 on the blessing of forgiveness, that David glories in the faithfulness of God, in the steadfast love of God, in the, the good of God for him, even in fact, uh, David wrote lots of Psalms that that point to this, Psalm 26, another, that David is one who is willing to focus his attention on the steadfast love of God and boast in the faithfulness of God. And when we get to the end of David's life, what we should conclude is that God was faithful, that God was the one who saved David through a future Messiah, that God was the one who granted faith and repentance to him, that he was the one who uh, because David desired the glory of God, that God glorified Himself in David's life. So, just as we reflect on that, as we close there in chapter twelve and turn to some questions, you know, I, I love the fact that in chapter twelve we see that this final epilogue marker of David's return to responsibility, in chapter in chapter twelve verses twenty six to thirty one. Um, We see that Joab is fighting against Rabbah. Remember that's the same city mentioned at the beginning of 11, that Ammonite capital? And look at what verse 29 says there. It says, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. So what we see is this contrast, 11-1 and uh, 12-29, the contrast between irresponsibility, complacency, and activity, action, contrition and faith. David returns to his responsibility as shepherd and king to root out idolatry in the land. And so friends, um, as David's kingdom continues to expand over the next 23 years, um, I just challenge you with me this morning to remember that main point that we need to beware of the blindness of complacency and be turning to a treasure of being contrite before the Lord. I, I, wanted, I did want to share the end of this story. So you remember my friend, my friend Talmusi, that my Atta brother. He, this is a picture w- um, in 2014. He and he was there when we went down and did a film, a film project with the Ata, and his wife is in the middle there. And after his confession and our talking with the congregation, he humbled himself and began to serve quietly behind the scenes one his the ministry that we had of building projects turned into a ministry where he was he he took that set of tools and he was working behind the scenes building houses for believers and widows in the community and uh, i heard i i heard about it from afar that he was doing that and you know you just you're do, you're praying for the lord to do restorative work because a public sin like that, it, the whole community has to come to terms with it. And then restoration involves, the potential for restoration involves the community deciding what what to do with it too. It's not just the fact of one individual being repentant or not. And so I, I went back in 2014, three, three plus years after his confession and his serving the church diligently behind the scenes. And just had the privilege of seeing him restored in the eyes of the congregation, to be able to be a part of the the team again, the leadership team there again, and I'm not saying that's the way it works in every case. So I'm not making a some sort of principled statement about restoration, but I but I am saying that the Lord truly honored and blessed contrition in that situation. He He put this man in a position to be able to be restored to to work in the church and. I just challenge you. It's not because we need a certain kind of outcome. In fact, one of the ways that we can make demands in situations of repentance is, or lack, really, of repentance is that we clutch onto a demand that the narrative has to work out the way that we want or else we're not going to open our hands. Like I'll, I'll, You can pry off one finger or two fingers, and I'll see what happens with the story. And if the story is going in the right direction, I may open this up. But if it isn't, I'm going to grab hold again because it's not quite working the way I want. And in Thomusi's case, praise God that part of his testimony now is the fact that God restored him because he opened his hands up and said, "I'm the man. I've sinned." And and friends, my point isn't now for us to only be looking for um, these massive examples of sin. I ho- I hope what you're understanding is there's a there's a posture of reflective contrition that it, that we understand contrition as a treasure and that complacency happens one decision at a time one small step at a time over a long period of time it's rarely the case that one of these events happens all at once so i'm encouraging you to be be on the lookout be proactive you you may say like me that's tiresome i'm tired of that like that's too much work and i say welcome to the life of a disciple God is faithful. His Holy Spirit is at work in you. He provides strength for you. When Paul says uh, that God's strength is sufficient in weakness, he's talking about real weakness. He's not talking about made-up weakness. And so God's strength is indeed sufficient for us in our weaknesses, and he gives us the privilege of living a life in the face of the fire of judgment, because Christ bore that fire of judgment for us, and so our contrition is a treasure. It's not a curse for us; it's a treasure. So let me leave some discussion questions with you here. I, I, I reframe these just a little from your um, your notes there. Uh, so let's use these, um, and I won't read them because, like I said last time, you guys are great readers. You know how to read. Um, but let me pray, and then I'll I'll let you. Uh, I'll come up and close in just about ten minutes after we have some discussion. Okay, Father, thank you again for the the treasure that um, forgiveness. Of course is for us, meaning we, we are people who need to be contrite in heart, to be repentant. And Lord, I pray that we will learn that, that we will regularly and in community express and expose sin so that we can be changed. Because without that process, we you know we can't be changed. And so I pray that we will be people who live that habit of life. So thank you for the privilege that you've given us to be um, repentant and forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.